Amen. Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 35. As we continue in our study of God's Word this morning, we're going to pick back up where we left off last Lord's Day. Uh, If you are with us, you know that we are nearing the end of our time in Exodus. We've now come uh, to the latter chapters there where God's people are now putting together the plans that God has given them in building the tabernacle. And so last Lord's Day, we looked at how God again has invited His people to be a part of the tabernacle through giving of their time and their talents and their treasure. We talked about that last Lord's Day, how chapter 35 begins with that reminder that all of the people's time was the Lord's, not just the Sabbath day, but all those days they were to work and to rest for His glory, just as we are to rest and work for His glory today. We talked about how they were to give from their treasure. They were to give from their talents. And ultimately in doing this, they came together to build the tabernacle. And so today we're going to continue in that study as now they are coming together to do those things. We looked at the contributions. Now we will look at the construction beginning in Exodus 35 verse 30. And we're going to be covering all of 36, but we're just going to read through verse 7. So out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to, if you would stand as we read the Holy Word of God this morning. And this is what the Holy Spirit says through Moses as he recounts the events of the Exodus, beginning there in verse 30. Then Moses said to the people of Israel, See, the Lord has called by name Bezalel, and a son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God with skill, with intelligence, with knowledge, and with all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood for work in every skilled craft. And he has inspired him to teach both him and Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with the skill to do every sort of work done by an engraver or a designer or by an embroiderer in blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen, or by a weaver or any sort of workman or skilled designer. Bezalel and a holy ab and every craftsman in whom the Lord has put skill and intelligence to know how to do any work in the construction of the sanctuary shall work in accordance with all that the Lord has commanded. And Moses called Bezalel and a holy ab and every craftsman to, in whose mind the Lord had put skill everyone whose heart stirred him up to come to do the work and they received from Moses all the contribution that the people of Israel had brought for doing the work on the sanctuary they still kept bringing him free will offerings every morning so that all the craftsmen who were doing every sort of task on the sanctuary came each from the task that he was doing and said to Moses the people bring much more than enough for doing the work that the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave command and word was proclaimed throughout the camp. Let no man or woman do anything more for the contribution for the sanctuary. So the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient to do all the work and more. If you would pray with me. Father God, we come to this time in Your Word where we have read unfamiliar names, And for some unfamiliar things, it's easy for us to just move quickly over this text and not stop and consider 
how the construction of the tabernacle in the wilderness during the Exodus applies to us today. And yet your word tells us of itself, Lord, that all Scripture is inspired and all Scripture is profitable. So, Lord, would you profit us through it today? Would you help us to understand better the gospel of Jesus today? Would you empower us through your Holy Spirit to respond to that gospel through repentance and faith today? We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. And you may be seated. Well, if you have read ahead in our study of Exodus, you know that as we come to the close of this book of the Bible, uh, the people do not reach the promised land. Uh, we started out looking at how God was delivering His people from their slavery, from their captivity, and we've seen how He brought them through the waters of the Red Sea and how He's taking them towards the land of promise. So one might expect that at the end of the book of Exodus, they would arrive at that land of promise. And yet we find that throughout the first five books of the Old Testament, these books are filled with anticipation of the land of promise, but it's not until the book of Joshua that the people actually arrive in that land. And so this can leave us feeling like there, there's really no conclusion to this book. It can leave us with a sense that we're kind of left hanging at the end of this book, and yet, as you read and study the book of Exodus as we have, I hope you've seen that there are very much some things that the Lord is bringing to fruition. There are some bookends we see in our study of the book of Exodus. For example, as we began our study, we began with God sending Moses there to Pharaoh and telling Moses to let his people go that they might worship him in the wilderness. And now we find ourselves towards the end of Exodus, the people are in the wilderness and what are they preparing to do? They are preparing to worship him through building the tabernacle, through inviting his presence among them that they might rightly worship. When we began the book of Exodus, we saw how God's people were crying out in their slavery. They had been enslaved for centuries in Egypt. They were working in hard conditions. They were laboring and they were toiling. And what were they doing? Pharaoh had them building cities for his glory and his honors. They were working day in and day out to make bricks for assembling buildings that ultimately were built for the glory of Pharaoh. Now as we come to the end of Exodus, what do we see? We see how God has delivered His people. He has saved them from their slavery. And now those very skills that they learned while they were enslaved to make those bricks. Well, now they're doing it, but they're doing it for the glory of God. And now they're going to build the tabernacle. Ultimately, one day, the temple. And all these things they learned how to do along the way. All this labor, all this toil. Now their efforts, now their building will be for God's glory and not man's glory. No, they're not in the land of promise yet. But we certainly see how God is bringing to fruition His promises. And we see how God is using His Holy Spirit in that process. As we come to Exodus 35, we come to this place in Exodus, really the, the first time in the Scripture where we see this description of God's Spirit filling someone. But we see that this is a reminder to us of what we already read in Exodus 31, that, that God is filling them with His Spirit because that's how important the tabernacle was. It's the first time we see God's Spirit filling someone, but it's not the first reference to the Holy Spirit in the Scripture. 
fact, we go all the way back to creation and we see there in Genesis chapter 1 how God's Holy Spirit is at work in creation. In fact, we see in John chapter 1 how the Son is at work in creation. We're reminded of the triune God, the Trinity, how Father, Son, and Spirit are all at work in creation. Genesis 1 tells us, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now what was that Spirit doing? Well, as we study the book of Genesis and as we study the creation account, we see that the Spirit is involved in the creation of all things. And one of the principal things in that creation was the garden. And there in the garden, God created Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve in the garden were there to worship God. God dwelt among them. In fact, we refer to the garden as a sanctuary, as a tabernacle. It was a place with boundaries where God dwelt among His people and they had perfect fellowship with one another. But Adam and Eve sinned against God. And when they sinned against God, they were removed from that sanctuary, removed from that tabernacle. There was now a barrier between them and God because of their sin. And the rest of Scripture tells the story of how God redeems His people that they might dwell with Him again. And we get a foreshadowing of that, a picture of that in the tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was a a construction that was to be right there in the middle of the camp. There were boundaries, there were barriers between the presence of God and God's people. But the purpose of the tabernacle was to allow God to dwell again with His people. Pointing us towards what we read earlier, John chapter 1. Pointing us towards Christ, who dwelt, the Scripture says. That word means tabernacled among them. Pointing us ultimately towards a new heaven and a new earth where God will once again dwell with us. And so today, as we walk through this passage, I want us to see how this passage in Exodus 35 and 36 fits into that big picture of God's redemptive plan and how God uses His Holy Spirit to work among His people here in this passage and reminds us that His Spirit is at work among us today. And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline, this reminder that God's Spirit empowers God's people for God's service. God's Spirit empowers God's people for God's service. Now again, the first people we find recorded in the Scripture who are filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, are Bezalel and Aholiab. And so, expectant parents, if you're looking for names, there's a couple to add there to the list. Uh, Bezalel and Aholiab, I guarantee you, you'll probably be the only ones in the nursery with those names. And so he he gives these two people uh, with very unique names a specific task. In Exodus 31, we read about how God raises these men up and He fills them with all sorts of knowledge, all sorts of skill in order to orchestrate the building of the tabernacle. And we know very little about these men other than their names. In fact, the holy abs never mentioned anywhere else in the Scripture other than the book of Exodus. And Bezalel was mentioned very briefly in First and Second Chronicles. But there it's merely a mention in a genealogy and a mention in reference to the tabernacle. And so what we know about them essentially comes to these passages and comes from their names. See, in the Old Testament, 
the Hebrew name that people were given often had great meaning about the call that was on their life and how it was God would end up, end up using them for his plan. And so, for example, Bezalel means in the shadow or the protection of God. Bezalel's name alludes to that this protective covering of God, which essentially points towards the tabernacle. And Aholiab's name means Father is my tent, or Father is a tent. Again, alluding to God the Father's presence dwelling there in that tent of meeting in that tabernacle. Their names had set them apart for this purpose to which God had called them. And God fills them with His Spirit that they might accomplish this purpose. We need to be careful that we don't overlook that. That the significance here that these men were filled with the Spirit of God in order to do the service that God had called them to do for His glory and for His people. The Spirit that was at work in creation of that first tabernacle of the garden is the same Spirit that's at work among God's people as they erect this tabernacle in the wilderness. And friends, that's the exact same Spirit that is at work in the church of Jesus Christ today. And it's the exact same Spirit that is at work in the creation of a new heaven and a new earth in that future dwelling that God's people will be in. We see this consistent thread through the Scripture, this reminder of the role that the Spirit of God plays in creating this dwelling place for God to be with His people. And we see that Spirit at work in the church today. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 22 tells us this, In Christ you also are being built up together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so friends, we today are the dwelling place. We today are the place in which God's Spirit dwells. He does that work through the work of the Holy Spirit among those who are followers of Jesus Christ. And then that Holy Spirit within us enables us to do the very things we just sang about. For example, just a few minutes ago, we sang trust and obey. Now, trust and obey can be a worshipful song that we sing in response to the gospel. Or trust and obey can be a burden that we place on ourselves. And here's the difference. If you think you're going to go to heaven because you of your own will are going to trust God and obey God in your own effort, that is a burden and that will not save you. No one in this room has the capacity or the power to roll up your sleeves and decide, I'm going to trust and I'm going to obey and I'm going to do it. I'm going to be good enough. I'm going to be religious enough. I'm going to obey everything God's told me to do. Well, that fails apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that enables us to trust God and enables us to obey God. And we've talked about this many times. If you think that your works will lead to your salvation, friends, you have been deceived. It is your salvation that leads to any good work that you'll do. And if we get that order confused, as so many so often do, we will have a frustrated and a miserable experience attempting the Christian life in our own efforts. And that's why you can look around this morning 
And you can see empty places where people you know once sat. That's why you can look through old church directories and you can see portraits of people who at one time were sitting here right beside you and no longer are. And why is that so often the case? Because so often we walk through these doors and we walk down this aisle and we open up this book and we do it with a thought that if I just try harder, if I just get better, if I just fix whatever it is, it will all work out. And yet we see very clearly in God's Word that apart from the work of the Gospel, and apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, friends, we cannot do these things. But the great promise of the Christian life is if we will confess Christ as Lord, if we do believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, if we place our trust and our faith in Him and His work on the cross, not our attempts at good works, then we will indeed be saved. And once we are saved, the Scripture says He seals our salvation with the Holy Spirit. He fills us with the Holy Spirit. And then through the work of that Spirit, we are empowered to obey. Jesus said it this way in John, 15, John 14, verses 15 through 17. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now again, that can be a wonderful promise in light of the gospel, or that can be a great burden on us if we try to do it in our own effort. But Jesus expands on this by helping us to see we can't do it in our own effort. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus says, that, that He's not wanting to place a burden on us, a load on us. He says He wants to give us the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to obey the things of God. And how does the Holy Spirit do that? Friends, perhaps you've had the experience where you've, you've wondered at times, am I even saved? How can I know for sure that I'm a Christian? One of the evidences of the faith is for those who are truly in Christ, we have the Spirit dwelling in us. And it is that Spirit that leads us to conviction. It is that Spirit who changes our appetites. It is that Spirit who prompts us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, I don't know many people who I would say are lost and on the way to hell and they're overly concerned about their salvation. They don't care about their salvation. It is those who are God's people who work these things out and process through these things. And the Spirit prompts to understand His Word, to be convicted of sin. He empowers us to obedience. And also, He empowers us to share the Gospel. The Gospel is one of those things, witnessing is one of those things that again, we think, well, if I just try hard enough, if I just roll up my sleeves, well, I've just got to go out there and do it. I don't want to do it. I'm scared about it. But if I just make myself. But notice how different the context is in the Scripture when we consider the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. 
And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is the Spirit of the living God within us that empowers us to tell others about Christ. And, and so if you this morning have no desire to tell other people about Jesus, if you have no desire to obey the things of God, that's a pretty good indication you don't have the Spirit of God in you. Which is a pretty good indication that, friend, you are lost. You're deceived. You're under some type of impression that perhaps things are okay, but, friend, they're not. And this isn't something to take lightly. The Scripture tells us very clearly that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all born on a level playing field there. It says none is righteous, not even one. And the wages of that sin is death. It is hell. Will we bear the wrath of God for all eternity because of our sin? The great promise of Scripture is that God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He took our punishment in our place on the cross. And the Scripture says it's not enough just to know all this. Well, we have to respond in faith. Scripture says if we'll confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Friend, have you confessed Jesus as your Lord? Do you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead? If you believe that and you've made that confession, the Scripture says, then you are saved. The Scripture says, then you are filled with the Holy Spirit who then enables us to obey God, to spread the Gospel, and ultimately to worship God. Romans chapter 8, verse 15, it is the Holy Spirit who empowers us to cry out, Abba, Father. Ephesians 5, a passage we mention often when it comes to the filling of the Spirit, tells us that it is the Spirit who fills us and enables us to worship. It says, therefore, do not be foolish. Ephesians 5, 17. But understand what the will of the Lord is. Now, listen. I can't tell you the number of times I've had people come to me and say, Pastor, I just wish I knew what God's will was. Well, you don't need a magic eight ball this morning. <laughs> Here it is. Hey, he says, this is the will of God. Well, what is it? Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Yeah, it is the will of the living God that you and I be filled with His Holy Spirit. Why? Well, he goes on to say, because then when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we can address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Friends, you can study Ephesians 5 in the original language, and you won't find anything in there about singing and making melody to the Lord if you have a good voice. <laughs> you won't find anything in there about how this is just for people who have great singing voices or who are a delight to hear. It says we're all to worship God. You also may notice there that this worship is to be done for God in the name of Jesus, not for man in the name of our preferences. And yet you think about how we talk about worship so often. How was church this morning? Well, you know it was all right. I just, uh, you know, those songs we sing, I just, I don't get anything out of them. 
Well, guess what? It's not about you. <laughs> this isn't the church of Richard Carwell. This isn't, let's see how well my worship tank was filled up today or what I got out of it. Friends, you understand that worship is something you give, not something you get, don't you? Worship is not a time for us to gather around our traditions and our preferences and to do things that make us feel comfortable or I really like this style or, or this song. Oh, I just get this feeling. It's not about you. I realize that's very counterculture these days. And I realize so many of us have grown up with this notion that it's all about me. Friends, it's not about you. It's about God. And it's about how we might rightly worship Him. Again, I'll remind you, God does not say to His people in the book of Exodus, I am to be worshipped. Now you just find whatever style or preference you have that fits you the best, and I'll just take whatever you want to give. Now all these verses, even all those verses in 36 we didn't read, they're very specific related to how it is God wants to be worshipped. It is God who should dictate our preferences. Not we who should dictate them. And the Spirit of God is the one who empowers us to come and sing and come and worship. It is He who fills us. But again, friends, we cannot do these things in our own effort. The Christian life was meant to be lived empowered by the Holy Spirit, not empowered by your will. You might think of it this way. Imagine how bizarre it would be this week if you were to drive past 212 Fairfield Hill. That's where I live. If you're crazy, just forget the address, but 212 Fairfield Hill there. Imagine you to drive past there and you see me out there on my 10-year-old, 12-year-old John Deere riding mower, and I've got it cranked up. And that blade's just a spinning. But then you look behind the mower and you see Anna Claire and Vivian and Caroline all pushing that mower. Would that seem peculiar? I think so. And let's say you cared enough. Maybe you wanted to get the whole story so you could tell it at Bart's Mart. Maybe you just wanted to stop and help me. But you pulled up and you said, Preacher, what's going on? And I said, well, nothing, I'm just mowing the grass. I've got the blade turning, and I've got this thing in neutral, and the girls are just pushing me all around the yard. That's how you mow the grass, isn't it? And you said, preacher, I'm about to blow your mind. Try putting that thing in gear. First, second, I don't know about yours, mine goes all the way to five. And you put that thing in five, and you leave those girls behind, and mow that yard that, that's how the lawnmower works isn't it it's got this engine and this engine's the power and the power turns the blade but the power turns the wheel and when that power's working and when it's engaged and it's moving you're just holding on and you're just steering the wheel Friends, the Holy Spirit is to empower us in the Christian life but what a lot of us end up doing is pushing a riding mower around our yard we read verses about obedience, then we say, okay, I just got to try harder. And then we fail. And then we vow, oh, I just got to try harder. I got to work harder. Well, if I just do this, and I just do this, and I just... 
I, I, I. It's not what God's called us to. God's called us to live the Christian life in Christ, empowered by Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit who then empowers us to live and do these things. What does that look like? Well, we have an example here in the Scripture. Point two, God's Spirit then enables God's people to be cheerful givers. We see an example of how the Holy Spirit empowers His people in this passage to do the things that He's called them to do. In fact, invited them to do. Now again, it's just those two individuals, Bezalel and Aholiab, that, that we can read and infer there that are filled with the Spirit. But, but God's doing something here among all us people. You may remember from our study last week, we talked about how often the heart is mentioned and this generous heart, this stirring of the heart. I think God's Spirit's at work among His people collectively here. And so what He does is He invites His people to contribute to the work of the tabernacle. Notice, He doesn't command them. He doesn't force them. He doesn't say, go around to every tent and every person and they better give this percentage. They better give this much. No, He simply invites them. He says, those with a generous heart. And through the work of the Spirit, then He prompts people to respond to that invitation in quite an overwhelming way. Chapter 36, verse 3 says they make a free will offering. Free will, that means voluntary. That they gave because they wanted to give. They gave because they wanted to be a part of this work that God was doing. These were not dues or taxes or owed. This was an invitation they responded to because they wanted to, not because they had to. And notice, it just keeps going until Moses has to tell them to stop. In fact, you read verses 6 and 7 there, and the indication seems to be that as the people are trying to use their skills God's empowered them with to, to build the tabernacle and put together this structure, this dwelling place for the presence of God, they're having to stop constantly because people keep bringing them more stuff. And here's more gold. Here's more silver. Here's more bronze. I know I gave yesterday, but I just want to give more. I want to be in on what God is doing. And it gets to the point where people are giving so much that it's distracting the people from doing the work with the resources that have been given. To the point where they have to tell them, Moses communicates to them, stop! <laughs> That's enough! We've got what we need. I will tell you one of my great joys as your pastor is to see your generosity. Last week, this is just a side note, but just something that comes to mind. Last week I mentioned in the context of the sermon that we had a college student who still was in need and needed $1,000 for a mission project. In less than 24 hours, I had to literally tell people, stop. <laughs> I had people coming to me this morning and said, stop. They've got, they got everything they need. Here's a way you can help. We had our students down there making pancakes this morning. I mean, where else can you go eat a pancake for the glory of God and support the mission of the church? Isn't that a wonderful thing? If you missed it, I'm sorry. You missed it. But we had the opportunity this morning. So I told, hey, listen, you want to support something else? We got kids wanting to go to camp. We got students wanting to go to Poland on the mission field and they still need money for their part of the trip. Go down there, bless them. And boy, did you. Trips are paid for now. It is a great joy of mine to hear of your generosity. 
And here's why it's such a joy. Because that is a work of the Holy Spirit in the people of Bloomfield Baptist Church. I mean, friend, if you give because you think somehow your giving is going to get you into heaven, let me just, just save it. Go buy a boat or something. I'm serious. You're going to be really confused in hell if you think writing a check is going to get you there. But friend, if you give because of the grace of God in your life in response to the work of the Spirit in your life, what a great joy to give. No matter what you have, no matter how little or how much, what a great joy to be a part of the work of God through our giving. We don't give to be saved. We give because we are saved. One commentator said it this way in regards to this passage, this example of generosity shows what happens when people who are saved by grace start giving from the heart. We are so grateful for what God has done that we want to keep giving and giving and giving. The story of the tabernacle shows that grace is the best motivation for giving. Rather than giving out of a sense of duty or even worse, a sense of guilt, God invites us to give with joyful and grateful hearts out of gratitude for what He has done to save us from our sins. And invites us to make free will offerings to advance the Gospel. See friends, this type of giving, we see it here in the tabernacle, we see it in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6-8. through The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now I realize whenever I start talking about giving, I always feel I'm kind of walking on eggshells a bit, like there's some self-serving nature to this. I mean, you always hear the person complain about, well, that pastor always talks about his money. I mean, I don't get a percentage of what you give today. It doesn't work that way. My desire today is not to convince you to give more money to the ministry of Bloomfield Baptist Church. Although, this, if this is your local church, you should give to and through this church. My desire is that we would be a generous people and that we would give not just to support the ministry of this church, but ministries all around the world. Friends, do you realize there are thousands, thousands of missionaries today who are God-loving, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching missionaries that that may not be Southern Baptist and going through our International Mission Board, who are raising their own financial support, who are here, not where they are called to be because they don't have the money to go and because people aren't giving that they can go. We have so many opportunities to support so many folks. And it's not about, well, when I make enough money. If you don't give when you have little, you won't give when you have much. A quote I'm reminded of often along those ways, those lines comes from John D. Rockefeller Sr. Many of you know that name. He was considered to be really the richest person that ever lived when you adjust the, the amount of resources he had stewardship over with inflation and the percentage of the economy. And 
at the time of his death in that day, it was a fortune worth about $1.4 billion. I think in today's dollars, that'd be around $400 billion. He was a Baptist. He gave faithfully to his local church. He served faithfully in his local church. In fact, this man, the richest man in the world, served as a janitor in his church for the glory of God. He said it this way, I've tithed every dollar God has entrusted to me, and I want to say this, if you've not tithed the first dollar you made, if I had not tithed the first dollar I made, I would not have tithed, tithed the first million dollars I made. It's not about how much we have, it's about what we do with what God has given us. And if God has given you a new heart, then that should be reflected in our generosity in being a cheerful giver and supporting God's work all over the world. Local missions, national missions, international missions, sending kids to camp, buying pancakes for the glory of God. These things we do as an overflow of the new heart God has given us. Point three, God's Spirit encourages God's people to long for God's presence. The verses that I did not read this morning, you can go back and read. You'll find there's much detail here about making curtains and making frames. <laughs> A very fine details over and over again. The significance of the tabernacle. All these fine details. Why so much information? Friend, it's because the tabernacle was very important to God's people. And here's why it was important. I fear that oftentimes we overlook the significance of the tabernacle and the temple because we simply look at them as places for ritual sacrifice. And we associate the, the tabernacle and temple with traditions and rituals and giving and sacrifice. And we completely miss out on what the point of the tabernacle was. The tabernacle was being made by God's people so that God could dwell in their midst. That the tabernacle was about the presence of God being among His people. Just like we see in the garden where God dwells with His people, we see in the tabernacle, now because of sin, there's separation, there's a veil, there's walls, but now God's dwelling place is there in the midst of His people. You study the setting of the tabernacle and you find it was to be right there in the middle of the camp. Everyone's tent faced towards it. That the tabernacle represented the presence of God among the people. Why were they so enthusiastic to build it? Because they were longing for God's presence among them. Ligon Duncan refers to this as Israel's Advent mode. You know, Advent is that season where we remember the first coming of Christ, we long for the second coming of Christ, we celebrate Advent around Christmas time. And he refers to this as Israel's Advent season. Why? Because, he says, they are preparing the tabernacle so that God will come in His presence and dwell in their midst. So in this passage, this overflow of generosity is a reflection of the fact that Israel is in Advent mode. They are enthusiastically preparing for the coming of the presence of the Lord. And friends, if you don't see that, if you, if you miss that, that may be an indication that that it's not just the tabernacle and the temple you misunderstand. It might be church today you misunderstand. See, there's a lot of folks who go to church today because of ritual sacrifice. 
There's a lot of people who go to church today because it's a tradition, because it's what you do. You stand when they tell you to stand. You sit when they tell you to sit. You read what they tell you to read. You sing what they tell you to sing. You try to make it through the sermon or the homily or whatever it might be and get out in time to get lunch. Over and over and over again. And along the way you make sacrifices. Sometimes you come to church on Sunday and you feel this sense of, well, I could have slept in, I was tired, but, but I'm doing a good thing. Making my sacrifice for the Lord today. A little money in the plate when it comes by. Making my sacrifice, I'm doing my part We see the church that way. We probably see the temple and the tabernacle that way. And and we miss entirely that Exodus 35 and 36 is about God dwelling with His people. The church of Jesus Christ today is about God dwelling with His people. And friends, if you have no desire to dwell with God, in fact, if if your desire of your heart is not to dwell with the Lord, then friends, one day God's going to give you the desire of your heart. And an eternal hell. But, but if you desire to experience God's presence, if you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, then you've been given the great empowerment of His Holy Spirit. And now we live the Christian life in light of that. Romans 8.13, we live by the Spirit. Romans 8.14, we're led by the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.13, we're taught by the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, we now walk by the Spirit. Philippians 3.3, we now worship by the Spirit. And again, Ephesians 2.2, in Christ we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friends, the tabernacle was an earthly representation of a heavenly reality. They got a glimpse of the presence of God. The church of Jesus Christ today is a earthly representation of a heavenly reality. We get a glimpse of what will one day be. We are scarred. We are battered. On our best day, most of us are pretty messed up. But we come to this place each Lord's Day to get a glimpse of a greater reality of what it will truly be to tabernacle with the living God one day. And so I can think of no better way to wrap this up than just to read you a passage that speaks in part of what that will be like. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be His people, and God Himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And friends, do you know how we're to respond to that? 
Revelation 22.17, the Spirit and the Bride, that's us, the Bride of Christ, say, Come! And let the one who hears say, Come! And let the one who is thirsty, Come! And the, what the, let the one who desires to take the water of life, take it without price. Friend, if you are thirsty today, if you desire this dwelling with God today, then there is one response, one response only, and that is to cry out, Lord Jesus, come. And if you've yet to trust in Christ, to repent and place your faith in Him, then friends, there is one response for you, and that is to confess Him as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. So let's cry out those things together. If you would stand as I pray for us, and as we sing and as we respond. Lord Jesus, I ask based on the truth of Your Word, the promises You have made that are trustworthy and true, Lord Jesus, I pray that You would come. I pray for the day, Lord, where there is no more mourning and no more tears and no more death, no more suffering. I pray, Lord, for the day when we get to go back to the garden and dwell with You unencumbered by temptation and sin and the fallenness of this world, where we can freely know what it is to dwell with You and You with us. And Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ that are here today, Lord, that through the power of the Spirit, that You would put that, that hunger and that thirst on all of our hearts, that, that we would be able to push away the distractions of this world, the, the day-in, day-out noise around us that so easily can call our attention to this world and take it away from the world to come. And I pray for those here, Lord, who are yet to be my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Lord, I pray that they would see through the power of the Holy Spirit the truth of Your Word, the call that You've placed to us today to respond in repentance and faith. And I pray they would do that very thing now. In Christ's name, Amen.